It's January 7th, 2021. This is a special edition of Rook. Flight PS752. We will not forget. it's the anniversary and we're all together again and my parents like when I see my father my mother their eyes are all always wet tear in their eyes I just said please tell me it's not Ukrainian airline no justice would be real justice in this scenario real justice would be for them to come back we all look 10 years older comparing to the picture that was this day last year if I were the pilot of that airplane, if I knew it that the, there's a high alert in the airspace, I wouldn't fly the airplane. Actually, the only outrageous fact we know is that these people, whoever they are, their maximum penalty is supposed to be three years in jail. Three years hmm. for murdering 176 right. people. This was not um, an air disaster for one thing. This was not a plane malfunctioning. This was a very specific criminal act by a criminal regime with a history of criminality. I'm not sure if I'm going to be happy again. Well, hi there. Those are some of the voices and moments you will be hearing on this special edition of Rook. Welcome to episode number 74 of our program. I'm Giango Meshi, and we are on an ongoing mission to build an audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Salam, Dustan Aziz. We're coming to you on our platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Telegram, iTunes, and YouTube. This will be a somber and serious episode, but really also necessary in our eyes. That is, despite all the madness going on in parts of the world this week, we felt we needed to devote an entire episode, this one, to the horrific events of exactly one year ago and all the innocent lives that were so tragically lost. Look, if you're a member of our Rook audience or have even just happened upon this show recently, it's unlikely that you don't already know the harrowing and devastating story of Flight PS752. For many of us in the Iranian diaspora, this was the ultimate in nightmarish news, even on the heels of all the outrages that Iranians have had to confront in the last four decades, the implications of a repressive theocracy in the country of our ancestry, years of atrocities and executions, more recently a brutal crackdown on protests in November 2019, and add to that a general misunderstanding and global misconception full of stereotypes of who Iranians are. This event surely was enough to push many of us over the edge. But even more specifically, for those in the Iranian-Canadian community, where a disproportionate number of the victims of this tragedy, this crime, came from, this was even more personal. The victims were people we knew, people we were in touch with, people we lived with, loved and lauded. They were our hamvatan. And every member of the Rook team has one tie or another to dear folks we lost on that plane at the hands of the IRGC. The events of this moment one year ago would lead to weeks of mournful gatherings in our community, 
the final times we would assemble in a pre-COVID period, sharing tears, heartache, frustration, and no shortage of anger at how this happened. In fact, the impetus for launching this program was underscored by our feelings after this tragedy and our desire to create some kind of platform in English to share stories, ideas, and impressions of Iranians that are not just steeped in traditional stereotypes, and to create a discourse around identity and who we are in our global community. On our first episode of Rook in April of 2020, we dedicated the program to the victims of Flight PS752 and their families. Today, we hope to continue that dedication and that promise to not let the memory of this sad event and these innocent lives lost ever be too far from our memory. Over the next couple of hours, we've invited some guests from around the world to share their experiences, their emotions, and their stories with respect to PS752. Arash Muradtab, who lost his brother and sister-in-law, Arvin and Aida, will join us from Canada. Anna Raiskaya, who has covered this story from the beginning, will join us from Ukraine. Navoz Ebrahim, who lost her dear sister and brother-in-law, Nilofar and Saeed, will be on the line from Dallas, Texas. Kaveh Shahruz, who is a human rights campaigner and lawyer, will join us from Toronto. Nima Neastani, who lost his partner, Shadi, will be with us from Canada, as well as Amir Kastravi, who has dedicated his life to aviation and flight safety. And Sagar Nurian and Ashkan Davutpur, who lost their sister Ghazal, will join us from Washington, D.C. We hope that you will stick with us to hear these voices and keep these memories alive, as well as to pay tribute to all 176 victims and their families. And now, a Rook Special Edition, Flight PS752. We will not forget. first guest on this Rook special edition is a Kurdish Iranian software engineer living in Canada. Arash Muradtab received his master's degree in cloud computing from ETS University in Montreal. He works as a solutions architect and helps different organizations to build and modernize their IT infrastructure. Arash lost his brother Arvin and sister-in-law Aida Farzaneh on PS752, and since that time, Arash has been actively engaged in the search for justice around this horrific event. He is one of the co-founders of the Association of Families of Flight PS752 Victims, and he's a member of the board of directors of that association. And Arash Muratab joins us from Toronto today. Hello, sir. Hello. Hi, Jian. Arash, uh, um, first of all, condolences once again to you and your family. I can only imagine it has been a, a very difficult year, and this anniversary is making it all very real again. You lost your brother and your sister-in-law. Tell us, if you can, what's in your thoughts, what you are feeling one year later. I feel like it's still the first day. Nothing has changed. All the questions are not answered. We're still at the same it's like with every news they keep killing them 
and weird anniversary, but it seems so fresh. We still like feel the pain as the first day. And also a disappointment from the international uh, community, which failed so far. And let's see uh, how it's going to go after, after this one year. What have the last few months, I'm going to ask you specifically about um, what you think needs to be done, what kind of responsibility you think needs to be taken and what you, what you see as justice, but just reflect a little bit more on what this has been like for, for you and your family over the last 12 months, how you've been living with this. Uh, since those those first days, first it was a, like a shock for all of us. Like we are, in, I was almost um, read the news. I was like falling real time while it was happening. I was seeing his flight on flight radar when he was flying. So everything for me is like so surreal since the beginning. And um, uh, all these days, uh, like we uh, just. All the families we got together we made this association we keep meeting each other we keep fighting and we are all engaged like half of our brain is like dealing with this case mm. with what happened to our be beloved ones and now it's the anniversary and they, we are all together again and my parents like when i see my father my mother like they're eyes are all always wet tear in their eyes and it makes me like really like keep going keep going harder and harder and myself too like it's it's like crazy it's so surrealistic world we're living in these days i know uh, both arvin and ida were young and highly accomplished they both had phds uh, what can you what can you tell us a little bit about them personally? Um, they were like trying hard for their life. They were all studying, studying, and everything was just ready. Like they were at the top point in their life to just start having fun and enjoy more and get benefits of what they tried hard for, like buy a house or uh, travel different places, having a baby and. Uh, they just went for this vacation. Um, they're always happy couple, always enjoying each other, and um, always smiling, good energy. And everybody remembers them all the, and they're always like planning all those like fun activities, like camping, going, f uh, gathering with friends, and they'll be always remembered. Yes. And when we do any any kind of gathering. Like in my family, we always think about them. Even their twins with my other brother, his Armin, but they're they're really like they have their own characters. Arsh, we we still we still do not have empirical evidence of exactly what happened on that night one year ago, other than acknowledgement that the Iranian military, the IRGC, shot down the plane. We know that. There are many who do not believe this was human error, as the Islamic Republic claims. What are your feelings on this? I think uh, the if we do, do math, like possibility of all these things being like not uh, on purpose, is like goes almost to zero. 
to not do a, such a thing like on purpose like first thing like why didn't you shoot down the iranian like the, the airspace before attacking there that's like 10 percent. if you do like more why did you um um uh, sh why did you like uh, shoot the two missiles to the plane that's like g lowers the possibility of not being on purpose like being on purpose mm -hmm. and if you just go deeper and deeper and multiply all these together doing this like shooting down this plane it's like it's like hundred percent on purpose if you do math and I'll uh, calculate this thing um, and all their behavior, all what they had so far, like uh, the way they're beh behaving and not answering anything. And uh, I think COVID helped them a lot too uh, here uh, because they could run about everything. Like even the Aban 98, uh, Aban and Abad Hashd happened. They killed 1,500 people in the street. Yes. They could run with it because of COVID and they could like increase the statistics for a number of people killed in Iran and uh, close down the streets due to covid and people can't make like protests or anything same thing happened for uh ps752 they could just prevent uh, sending with black boxes delaying it making fun of all these international laws and to me it's like completely on purpose to prevent a war with us well, it's it's not just that the Islamic Republic of Iran is not taking responsibility in many people's eyes. It's, it's that we've also heard many stories at this point about how the families of the victims of Flight 752 have faced intimidation and harassment and threats from Tehran and its agents. Uh, do you know about this? Have you or any of your family members been subject to this kind of harassment? Yeah, they calling they they try to call them like martyrs, like they who they uh, died for their their ideology. We can we can call them martyrs in their in the other words, but this is it's different than the way they call it. They had they don't have the right to call it that way. The killers can't call uh, call it that way. Maybe we can call it if we want, but they can't. And uh, it's their behavior. It's it's really uh, psychologically. It's really dangerous for the victims and the families of the victims like the guy who uh, came to the tv miss uh amir ali hajizadeh and he accepted the full responsibility um he comes back to the tv every week almost and laughs and goes and launches shows his missiles like every missile i see i think about the two missiles they shoot at the plane like I see his face, I see that night that he said I accepted the full responsibility and now he's laughing the next day and he's showing his own other facilities. He gets involved in the um, car industry, like a machine industry. He gets involved in many different things. Like nobody resigned and I, everybody's keep seeing this these guys and this is mind-blowing has anyone contacted you specifically or or any of the association members from the irgc or from tehran or any sort of agent to say stop this you shouldn't be uh demonstrating you shouldn't be calling uh, creating any more um public uh awareness or, or or anything uh no not to me personally when you talk about seeking justice and we hear that a lot um, what exactly do
do we mean at this point by justice? What what would be what would you consider justice for the downing of of Flight Seven Five Two, and what would give you or family members some kind of closure? I think um, the like the most realistic thing I see, like the the families I feel about them about having justice is see uh, those who uh, did this thing who they shoot the missiles and give the command and all those chains and after everything is clear those need to uh, suffer same as the families what they went through they have to be a pay they should be a payback they have it's not about money it's about nothing can replace this thing and they have to um, yeah, I think everybody's like thinking when they want to calm themselves down, they think about them suffering and getting like uh, going to the court and get like intimidated, get like suffer and pain, like what the, all the families went through. That makes them their them feel a little better, I think. And it's it's not like you can't go back in time and bring them back. And uh, so, what about all this one year we've been through? Um, do you feel like yeah, we're, that's all I can say? Do Do you feel like we're any closer to getting that justice? Uh, we we have a long way because there's still. Uh, coming and laughing in the TV and still doing their own stuff. And they, they, they are doing like not answering to anything. Uh, but I think uh, after what happened to us, we had two choices to just keep be, be quiet and do nothing or do something about it and fight for it. And this way we are fighting. It's like, I, I don't have a regret, but my life has changed, and all these families the same, and we are all together in this. A final question to you: If uh, if Arvin were here today, what would you want to say to him? I want to say um, I love you, Arvin. I really miss you. We're always thinking about you. Arash Maratab, I know uh, these interviews can will never get easier talking about this. I, I really appreciate what you're doing with the association. Uh, we really thank you for speaking out and for coming on our program. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Bye. سر سودای آغوش تو داره نگفتی ماه تا امشب چه زیباست ندیدی جانم از غم ناشکیباست چرا رفتی چرا من بیقرارم به سر سودای آغوش تو داره
This is a Rook Special Edition Flight PS752. We will not forget. We're coming to you on our platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Telegram, iTunes, and YouTube. And we invite you to subscribe if you like what you're hearing and want to learn more about our content. We also invite you to visit the website ps752justice.com, ps752justice.com, that the families of the victims have set up for the latest information, schedules of commemorations, and ideas about how you can help. We've also linked to that website from ours, rookmedia.com. Our next guest is a freelance reporter who has contributed to Radio Farda for 12 years, mostly reporting on major news in the countries of the former Soviet Union, as well as stories related to Russia and Iran. Since the downing of Flight PS752, Anna Raiskaya has reported on every aspect of its investigations and negotiations. Anna's knowledge of Ukrainian and Persian has helped her to closely follow the developments around this tragedy, both in Ukraine and Iran. And right now, Anna Raiskaya joins me from Kiev, Ukraine. Hello, Anna. Uh, hello. Thank you very much for doing this today. Uh, thank you for having me, and I'd like to thank you for not letting this tragedy to be forgotten. And I'd like to take the opportunity to send my condolences to all the affected families. Well, thanks for saying that. And, and you know, that dovetails into my first question for you, which is that you have been very connected to this story and have covered it closely over the last year. I'm thinking it, it it's quite impossible to not get emotional reliving the stories of so many innocent lives lost. What has this year been like for you? Well, um, I remember quite clearly the first hour when I heard this news on the media. Uh, it was a shock. Then it was a lot of hard work for the first few days. And then uh, there was this ceremony when the body arrived and meeting all those families, um, seeing their grief, it was um, maybe a little too much. Uh, quite unbearable, actually. And uh, I thought that after all this work and after all this time, I would develop some kind of immunity. So far, this hasn't happened, actually. Uh, yesterday, I was at the screening of the Ukrainian documentary about the plane, and I was sitting next to uh, Denis Lichnow's father. Denis was a flight attendant, and he uh, died when he was 26. And, and his father cried through all the movie and uh, he was filmed on his son's grave and he said this very um, strange words. Uh, I mean, we usually hear this the other way around. He said he always wanted to be like his son and uh, maybe that's why this tragedy was very hard uh -huh. to him. Uh, I know the stories of actually many other families, not only in Ukraine, also in Canada, in other countries, mainly through Twitter. And my colleague lost his cousin in this terrible crash. Um, well, maybe I just end at a little positive note. I uh, also met many people and became friends with many people because of this tragedy. So I guess people are brought together not only by something good, but also by something very, very bad. You know, we... We've dealt with this in Canada, which uh, which you know had a disproportionate number of the lives lost in this uh, incident, and those of us in the Iranian Canadian community uh, felt it very deeply and, and know and knew so many of the folks who were on this flight. 
and obviously it was a huge story in Iran, we know little or, or less about how this affected Ukraine, despite the fact that there were many Ukrainians also on that flight, and the flight itself was a Ukrainian airliner and a Ukrainian pilot. How, how was the story dealt with, or how have the Ukrainian people uh, consumed this story? Well, uh, Iran has always been a very distant place for an ordinary Ukrainian. And um, before this tragedy, people, I would say, people had little to no knowledge about Iran. Now they think of Iran as an awful place, as a place um, that uh, we actually got connected in the wrong way. Unfortunately, the way uh, the Iranian authorities dealt with this tragedy, it contributed to the grief, it contributed to the disappointment. And uh, we all uh, sincerely hope that uh, we'll get some closure, we'll get some truthful answers from Iranian, uh, from the Iranian authorities, and uh, we can actually move forward, maybe find another footing to develop our relations when uh, this when we have the closure. You know, I, I said that you've been someone who's been following this uh, this tragedy uh, very closely uh, for in Ukraine and in Iran. Uh, uh, so let me ask you to one year removed from the actual horrific event, take us through what we've learned. I mean, uh, first take us back to this time last year, despite all the kinds of tensions in the region, specifically after the American killing of Soleimani and, and the Iranian military response. Iran did not close the sky um, to civilian flights on that night of, uh, well, I guess it was on the morning of January 8th, 2020, uh, Iran time. Why was the civilian airspace not closed? Uh, I believe you have to ask Iran's president or the head of the IRGC or Ayatollah Khamenei. I even don't know who is in charge of closing the airspace in Iran. Um, I can tell you about Ukraine because many ask why Ukraine didn't cancel its flights to Iran. Actually, several days ago, and I tweeted this story, Ukrainian president's former advisor basically accused secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council of failing to save this light. And he alleged, um, I, I say alleged because he didn't give any proof, that on the 7th of January last year, he received from what he says was a trusted source this information about upcoming military actions in Iran and um, this notam to um, American airlines to avoid Iran and Iraq's airspace. Um, this may be true because we know Iran warned Iraq and through Iraq other countries of its um, upcoming missile attack on the US bases. Well, in Ukraine, um, this uh, person is called Igor Novikov. He didn't. Uh, he says he didn't want to. Uh, it was a late hour, and he didn't want to wake up everyone. So he just made sure that uh, the secretary of the National Security Council uh, saw his messages, um, and that's it. And. Uh, well, there uh, wasn't uh, no official confirmations or other comments to this story, and many think this accusation may only be someone's political play uh, against um, 
Alexei Danilov, but uh, it actually raises many questions. Uh, we don't know exactly uh, why, for example, Ukrainian President Zelensky was on a trip to Amman in those days. Uh, my colleagues in the Kyiv Bureau or Radio Liberty, they broke the story about this very mysterious um, meeting that our president had with Russia's National Security and Defense Council Secretary Nikolai Patrushev. Um, and actually, after this crash happened, uh, it took our president almost 19 hours to get back to Ukraine, which is weird. I, I, of course, I'm not saying that uh, these stories have any connection, but well, uh, they happened at the same time, almost at the same place. And uh, both sides uh, refused to comment. Of course, uh, Russians uh, keep denying Putin's meetings with Qasem Soleimani, while Iranian propaganda recently um, trumpets quite a lot about them. Hmm. Uh, but getting back to facts, um, I mean, this may be some rumors, but getting back to facts, the Ukrainian International Airlines uh, says they own all the planes, says there were no notams, so they had no reason to cancel the flights. And this airline is in a very difficult financial situation, has been for years. And so under the normal circumstances, canceling flights without a major reason would have subjected them to very heavy fines. And they say the decision had to have been made by Iran. Why no such decision was made? Or was the airspace deliberately left uh, kept open? Mm, I don't know. You, I know you've spoken to the wife of the pilot of Ukrainian airline uh, PS752, that fateful flight. D has she told you anything about what he might have communicated to her? Did he have any trepidation about flying that day? Uh, yes, actually, as I said, that I made friends uh, with many people. Katerina Gaponinka, uh, the pilot's widow, was uh, one of them. And uh, we uh, talked a lot, and not only through work, but through our personal contacts. She uh, told us, uh, told me and my colleagues during the last interview uh, that uh, her husband uh, was very irritated, even angry. She thought this was kind of personal she got angry with him they didn't have a proper goodbye uh, but now she thinks he was only worried but he was a man of duty and uh, he couldn't refuse um, not just to go to work he had to uh, go on the slide and well he did it yes and he of course lost his life as well the the, the question of whether this was an intentional shooting has been at the heart of assessing this tragedy. A, a recent report by Ralph Goodale, he's the special advisor to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, undercuts Iran's claims of human and technical error. I mean, this is a question I'm asking everybody on this special just to see where they're at on this. But what do you think? In your opinion, was this horrific event a simply a human error, as the Islamic Republic of Iran has claimed? Well, obviously, I don't know the exact answer, but uh, well, Iran wants us to believe this tragedy happened because of a human error. Well, I would say maybe or maybe not. Uh, when did Iran tell us that this plane was mistakenly brought down? On Saturday, January the 11th, and it was the first day after they decided to admit this wasn't a technical failure after all. But how did they understand this was a human error? Have they completed their investigation by the early morning of the fourth day? If so, why they denied the shutdown during the first three days? 
why it took them one year to deliver the final draft of their technical report. Right. Iran expects we uh, take their words at face value, mainly because this isn't the first time a civilian airplane was mistakenly shot down by the military. But this isn't the first time a civilian airplane was shot down by the military deliberately either. So which is it? Iran has to provide evidence to its claim. Actually, it's relatively easy uh, because maybe not so many people know that in the same way an airplane has black boxes to record all the technical information and the cruise communications, the TOR missile system has its own black boxes, which can be deciphered and give us the information about whether this system was misaligned, whether oh, it mistook the civilian plane for a military target. I never realized that Missiles have black boxes. That's interesting. Yes, yes. And um, that's why I thought maybe this is important to mention. Uh, this black box will give us all the answers. Uh, if uh, Iran, I don't know, for some reason, refuses to give them to Ukraine, uh, the same way they chose France to decide by the black boxes of the plane, they can choose an independent international investigator. By refusing to do this, Iran implicates itself. Or are they afraid we will know for sure that it was not a human error? Now, I mean, this isn't the matter of my opinion or someone else's opinion. We can deal with facts and hard evidence. And the only, um, the only reason we have to speculate is because Iran refuses to cooperate, despite all their assurances of being, tra of being transparent. Well, spe speaking of that, as a party to the Convention on International Civil Aviation, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran is required to investigate and prosecute all offenders and their accomplices. Uh, so far, they've not seemed to have done that at all. Rather, they've sought to ensure that the most senior officials involved avoid accountability. What, what can you tell us about the latest on a legal case internationally and the investigation uh, in Ukraine and Iran? Uh, well, you know, this case, it has several tracks. And first of all, it's technical investigation, and then comes criminal investigation. And um, there are so many speculations, but the facts are very few. Basically, the only thing we know for sure is that this plane went down as a result of an unlawful interference. I use this term specifically because it usually raises many questions. Uh, it means that the reason for this plane crash is something other than a technical failure or pilot's error. And um, we know this for sure from the deciphered flight recorders. This is one fact. Another fact is that this external object was a missile. And we know this from multiple videos and also from the damage on the plane parts caused by an anti-aircraft missile. Some of the evidence of this damage was documented by Ukrainian forensics team, who despite Iran's very strenuous efforts to destroy this kind of evidence, managed to find several of shrapnel hit parts at the crash site. Well, we know that for at least 19 minutes after the missile hit, the pilot and the co-pilot were trying to navigate this plane, and the instructor kept giving them orders, just as the manual says, actually, it's quite amazing. And this is all, this is it. This is all we know for a fact. There are also some plausible suppositions, like there were two missiles, and Iran said this in one of their preliminary reports, and also, again, we can see more than one missile in the videos. Iran told us the missiles were shot by a TOR system, but uh, even this we don't know for a fact, because they didn't let the forensic team to collect any samples. They quite recently, on the New Year's Eve, sent Ukraine, the USA, and France, and these are the only countries which participate in the technical investigation. Iran didn't let Canada to join this team. So Iran sent the draft of its final technical report. 
Uh, we don't know what it says yet. Uh, the earliest date for it to be published is, uh, I, I guess, April. And um, I, I don't think there will be any leaks before that, uh, because uh, this will be the violation of the conventions and in all likelihood Iran will try to justify by this its own transgressions and violations of the conventions. And this is only about technical investigation. The criminal investigation, I mean, we don't know even a single fact. We heard that six persons have been arrested, uh, but um, Iran refused to specify who these people are, what role they played in the downing. And Ukrainian prosecutors say they have doubts such people even exist. During the talks in Tehran a couple of months back, a team of Ukrainian prosecutors were invited to the prosecutor's office in charge of this crime, but they said it, it was a photo op. They were shown file boxes, some files, all of them in Persian. Iranians promised to send some of this to Kiev, and they didn't do it. And actually, the only outrageous fact we know is that these people, whoever they are, their maximum penalty is supposed to be three years in jail. Three years hmm. for murdering 176 right. people. Right. I mean, in a nutshell then, what do you believe the Canadian and Ukrainian governments can do to to not allow the IRGC to escape with impunity for uh, PS752? I believe Iran has only one choice, to tell the truth. They may buy time, make excuses, but this won't end well. I uh, believe if they had told the truth on, their, on the very first day, whatever this is, uh, they knew the truth on their very first day. It would have been so much better for anyone, definitely for the families, but also for Iran, for Islamic Republic of Iran too. Because uh, in, if these uh, negotiations will meet the dead end, the countries will go to court. And uh, actually, Iran, uh, by taking the United States uh, to the international arbitration after the U.S. shot down the Iranian plane in the late 80s, uh, it showed the way. So they know how this works and it, it won't go well for them. Uh, frankly, I don't understand uh, what is their motivations and how they actually see um, this way, the way out of the situation. Ukraine has lots of um, legal experience seeking international arbitration. I'm sure Iran knows this. And I'm sure that at least at this point, Ukraine is very determined, and so is Canada, to seek justice, to uh, help, this fam help the families um, find answers. And, uh, well, the sooner Iran provides these answers, um, the better for all. Yeah, it's a matter of whether that it happens at all, though. I mean, as I say, there's the intentions sound good, and what and the and the statements made by the government sound good. But uh, we're, you know, speaking to the families of victims today on this program, I mean, I'm sure you go through this all the time. They're still searching for answers. They're still searching for some sense of of justice, some sense of accountability around uh, you know these innocent civilians being murdered. 
Uh, Iran has announced, as you know, recently the allocation of $150,000 in compensation to each of the families of the 176 victims of 752. Canadian and Ukrainian officials say the amount should be negotiated. Uh, The Ukrainian deputy foreign foreign minister, as you know, has stressed that Kiev uh, had not entered into substantive dialogue with Iran on compensation. What do you think of this announcement and this compensation from Iran? Compensation, perhaps reparation is the better word. Uh, Well, it's the only way for a guilty party to make amends. So disregarding the ways this case goes forward, it'll end in financial, financial reparations to the family. But it's the end, not the beginning. Iran has always been willing to pay, but not to tell the truth. And quite frankly, um, how can we put a price on something? I don't mean this particular case. A price for any commodity, if you don't know what this is. Um, in April last year, I broke out the story for Radio Farda uh, that in March, Iran sent Ukraine a memorandum of understanding by signing, by signing which Ukraine agreed to accept the human errors in explanation in exchange for money from Iran. Like It was plain and simple. Get our money, close the case. And um, the people who leaked this story uh, in Ukraine and abroad believed this is simply wrong. And now this 150,000 that Iranian officials insist um, upon is just like another ridiculous attempt to to buy off, to bribe. I don't know Iran's real motivations. I don't mean $150,000 is ridiculous for Iran in its dire economic conditions. This may be a lot. And so for the family, maybe for families, I'm, I, I mean, it's not an amount for me to decide. What I mean is suggesting the money now, is offering the money now, is putting the cart before the horse. And I totally understand that it angers the families and it irritates enormously the Ukrainian officials and their partners. Anna, there's so much to talk about, and, and you've been at the center of, of bringing a lot of these stories to the into the public space, and I really appreciate that. It, it's before I let you go. I mean, it's clear the families of the victims and outraged people all over the world are not going to stop seeking some kind of justice, um, as you know. Where do you think this story goes next? Well, if uh, the negotiations uh, doesn't deliver any positive result, it will only end in court. Of course, when the country um, takes a legal action against another country, it's usually some kind of international arbitrations. I know the families want those responsible for this shutdown to be tried in the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But, well, this court can only prosecute crimes committed within member states or referred to the court by the United Nations Security Council. As far as I know, Iran hasn't ratified the Rome Statute making it a member state and uh, no doubt Russia, uh, which is itself to blame for the shutdown of the Malaysian airplane MH17 and which hasn't accepted the responsi- responsibility, will, will defend Iran at the Security Council. So with all these hurdles, this process is long. Um, but as I said, Iran showed Ukraine the way uh, how to institute this legal proceedings in court. And um, Ukraine is ready to negotiate with Iran, but patience uh, has limits. 
That's why the Ukrainian negotiators, the negotiators have always said they will use all tools at their disposal to have Iran accountable. I didn't forget you asked repeatedly about the can about Canadian position, but Ukraine represents Canada in talks with Iran. And as far as I understand, this isn't going to change, despite Iran's uh, very sharp criticism of Canada or ultimatums to Ukraine in this regard. Anna Raiskaya, I very much appreciate your time and your perspective today. Thank you for this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. بستم بی خبر مبار سفر با درد و حسرت از شهر خدا راهی شدم و رفتم به غربت ای تازه گلم ترک تو کنم با چشم خون با گلابتونم گلابتونم خدا You are listening to a Rook special edition flight PS752 we will not forget I'm Gian Gomeshi you can find the hub of all things Rook our website at rookmedia.com where we have also linked to ps752justice.com. We invite you to check that out. Our next guest is another person who lost a dear family member on flight 752. Navaz Ebrahim grew up in Iran, moved to the United States in 2012 when she was 24 years old to continue her education in Masters of Architecture at Iowa State University. She graduated in 2014 and moved to Dallas, Texas to work as a designer in architecture. Navaz lost her only sibling, her sister, Nilufar, and her brother-in-law, Nilufar's new husband, Saeed, when Ukrainian Flight 752 was shot down in that early morning of January 8th, 2020. Right now, Navaz Ebrahim joins us from Dallas, Texas today. Hello, Navaz. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being part of this. First of all, I'm so sorry for your loss of Nilofar and Saeed. We are hearing from families of the victims of this horrific event, and I know it doesn't get much easier, especially on an anniversary date like this, but uh, what can you tell us about where you are at right now, what you are feeling exactly one year to the date you lost your beloved sister? Um... As the day go days go by, it's uh, it's getting even more difficult. Um, there are still so many unanswered questions. Um, we feel like we're lost, and so much anger. We have so much anger because we still don't know why this happened to our loved ones that night why they didn't close the sky that night during the tension so it's just getting even more difficult and um it's very difficult to believe this actually happened mm. it's like we're frozen in time we're stuck wow 
you've gone from lost to lost. I mean, it doesn't, uh, there's no, you're, you're right. There's, there don't seem to be any answers forthcoming even a year later, huh? Yes, unfortunately, um, the Iranian government, um, they haven't done any cooperation with, with any of the involved countries. All they did was to um, hide the truth. And um, as you know, they lied for three days after the after the crime, and uh, they hijacked a lot of the funerals. They stole the victims' belongings. They bulldozed the crash site, and they called them martyr. Um, although <laughs> I think martyr with all due respect, has a different definition. Right. And uh, it's just several cases of harassing the families. And You know, let me, let me, I'm going to get to some of that, and I want to ask you about it. But uh, uh, first and foremost, I suppose, I mean, part of the imperative for us doing this special is to keep the memory of those we've lost. And all of us, uh, I think, on, on the team working on this show know somebody who was on that flight or had friends uh, and of course people like you who had dear family members on that flight uh, we want to keep the memories alive so let me ask you about Nilofar for a little bit I mean I know um, interestingly like 2019 the year before had started as a very happy year for you both because you both you and Nilofar had gotten married you had um, uh, big changes in your life what what can you tell us about her She was the kindest and sweetest heart sister. I still can't believe she's gone. She was so caring. She was very selfless uh, and she she would always care for others. She would put others before her herself. And uh, at the at the time the the crime happened, they downed the airplane. Uh, she had just submitted her thesis in September 2019, and her graduation ceremony was 10 days after the downing of the flight, and which she never made it to. And uh, she was doing her master's in business psychology at Kingston University in London, and um, she, she had already started doing charity work and contributing to the community. She had several plans. She wanted to go back to London, of course, starting her new li- uh, her married life with her husband, Said, and she wanted to start looking for a job, and everything was just about to start. Yeah. And also, Said, uh, he was like uh, the brother I never had. He was super smart, smart, very kind, very kind, very honest, and he was very smart and intelligent, um, very educated, and uh, he was a structural engineer, and he was uh, working on large-scale infrastructure uh, construction project in London. And at the same time, he was doing his PhD. You know, from what I hear, they... Is it true that they had just, they had literally just gotten married in London and that the part of what they were 
part of the journey they were on is that they had gone to Iran to celebrate for three weeks before returning to London via this flight. Was that is that correct? Yes, their their only reason to travel to Iran was to celebrate their wedding. And as you mentioned, 2019 was a very happy year for our families because a few months before their wedding, I got married and. So we were just over the moon. <laughs> that year was a happy year, and um, I wish we could return to those years, to those uh, days. Navos, is your family mostly in Iran? Yes, my parents, they live in Iran. And how have they coped with this? Um... Every morning when I get up, I have my um, my family picture. It's a picture from Nilufar and Said wedding. It's on the shelf next to my bed, and I look at the picture. And if someone looks at that picture and doesn't know us and have never met us, and they meet us today, I think we all look ten years older comparing to the picture that was this day last year. So it's just unbelievable to put this into words, how unbearable and unmeasurable this pain has been for all of us. When was the last time you spoke to your sister? Um, they, Nilofar and Said, they called us when they were on, on the plane, they were on board. They called us to say goodbye and um, my husband and I, we had just got back from work and I hadn't checked the news yet. And I, uh, I didn't know Iran has, uh, has attacked, uh, did, did a missile attack, uh, to the U S bases in Iraq. So she was, Nilufar was the one who broke the news to me. I, I didn't know the, the tension that night. And she said, um, I don't know if you've checked the news yet, but uh, this is a situation and I don't, I don't want you to be worried about us. And she, she just cared about us uh, not getting stressed over the news. And we had no idea the worst was coming for them. How did you find out? So as soon as we spoke with them, we just uh, turned on the news channel and we kept following on the news and uh, it was a very stressful night and everybody was worried uh, for a war between Iran and the US and we had a U.S. news on on TV, and at the same time, I was checking my Facebook to follow the Iranian news channels and looking for the latest news. So um, I just remember that uh, here on the TV, uh, the U.S. news, they were saying that it's probably good news because uh, the president of the United States, uh, he has decided not to come out from the White House. and. He has decided not to make an announcement, and this is good news. But immediately after, I saw on the Iranian news channels on my Facebook that uh, a Ukrainian flight 
has crashed due technical issues. And obviously I got very uh, stressed. And uh, at the time I didn't know which airline Nilofar and Said were, were flying with. Um, but still I didn't dare to open the news. And I think a few minutes passed and the news updated that a Ukrainian flight has crashed and all the passengers have died. And that, and that was when uh, I just couldn't manage my anxiety. I started Googling which flight this was, when was the departure time. Uh, and all I knew was that they were going to fly around five in the morning Tehran time. And uh, I remember on Google, it was saying it was an Ukrainian flight, flight number PS752. And the departure time was around five in the morning, but it had over an, over an hour delay. Yes. So then I called my parents in Iran and I think I, I woke them up because Nilofar and Said went to the airport by themselves and my parents were, were sleeping then. I woke them up and usually I, I never called them that uh, early in the morning and obviously they got worried and I don't I don't think I even say said hi to my mom just as soon as she picked up the phone. I asked her, Mom, can you tell me which airline Nilfer and Said were flying with? And immediately she got worried and she said, What has happened? It was a Ukrainian flight. And I told her, uh, one Ukrainian flight has crashed. Uh, can you check the flight number for me? And uh, they started the screaming and uh, she managed to find the flight information. And I never forget when, when she said flight PS752 and that, and at that time, I think we were just screaming and we are and she kept asking what has happened are they alive should i go to the airport and um and then my husband grabbed the phone and he 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 wanted to calm my parents down and he said we don't know yet they may be okay and i just couldn't tell them that i already know all the passengers have died so i just I just couldn't tell my parents and I, I just whispered into my husband's ears that uh, no one has survived, everybody has died. And I think it was a little bit after that that my parents heard it on the news that no one survived. So it was uh, everything, our lives changed after that night, for sure. How has your life changed? Um, Nothing feels normal anymore. Nothing feels normal anymore. And I think the worst is that we don't know the, the truth and no justice has been served. Nobody has been prosecuted. Nobody has been questioned. Nobody has even quitted. And um, on the Iranian TV, they're even praising uh, the IRGC head, Mr. Hajizadeh, and uh, it's, we're not even close to having any peace with this. It's like we can't say goodbye to our loved ones properly. It's like 
they're still here with us and they're expecting us to fight for them you know you've you've implied a couple of times i mean you've called it a crime and um we and you've also said we don't have the answers i mean we do know that the irgc shot down this plane um that's about the extent of what we know in terms of empirically knowing uh, there are many who don't believe that this was a human error as the islamic republic claims uh, i'm i'm guessing that it sounds like you don't believe this was an error um no uh, the human error scenario is just what trial the iranian government trying to um, have the world believe but it's just so ridiculous and <laughs> I don't think anybody can believe that especially the aviation experts the military experts um, they they have called the reports that were released by Iran so far um, ridiculous so it's not of course, it's not believable what they're trying to tell us. And there's no way that a huge passenger flight can be mistaken with a six meter long cruise missile. It's just under complicated uh, Russian made <laughs> uh, what's it called, uh, air surface to air missile Missiles, yeah. uh, machine. So uh, they say it's a very complicated uh, Russian manufactured machine and such a mistake with these equipments, it's just unbelievable. Now, Boz, let me ask you, I mean, you obviously you would know that this is a, this has been, um, I think, in in a in a positive way, I would say, because the the entire nation sort of rallied behind it. This has been quite a big story in Canada because there were a lot of Iranian Canadians on that flight, um, but there were people uh, uh, victims from around the world, uh, and you're in the United States. Um, how much are you able to coordinate with the other families, those, say, who are in Canada? Have you been keeping in touch with uh, other families of victims to console each other as a community or to, to, to be part of taking action? Yes, I'm so thankful that we have found each other and it's like we have a big family. And uh, we talk to each other every day and mostly it's it's... Uh, about sharing the news, um, considering this crime and any updates. And of course we share our grief with each other. And I think it has helped a lot uh, being together and ha having the same goal. I mean, of course the time unfortunately won't uh, go backwards and our loved ones won't come back to us unfortunately but at least we have some um we have some reason to wake up each morning and that is to find justice to find the truth and i think being together as an association of the victims families has helped and we are we are hopeful to accomplish this goal have you heard about this 
intimidation or threats from uh, Tehran and its agents uh, towards people who have been uh, towards the families of, of the victims? Or have you have you or your family been subject to this kind of harassment? Um, yes, there have been several cases um, from the first day, as you know, they lied for three days and they tried to visit a lot of the families they I mean they pressured the families to come in and visit them in person and of course that wasn't helping because they are the murderers and who wants to see the murderers in their own house so that was another harassment and they hijacked some of the funerals um the officials, uh, like I said, they haven't been, the authorities, they haven't been prosecuted, they haven't been questioned, they're even praised on the Iranian TV. And uh, they've arrested so many people only because they uh, lit, uh, lit a candle in, in the memory of our loved ones. And um, uh, like I said, they stole the victims' belongings, they bulldozed the crashed site, crash site. And one of the worst thing they did, they compared, they are comparing several times the number of COVID, uh, um, right. COVID cases that unfortunately passed away yeah. because of COVID with the number of uh, flight PS752 victims. And they're, they're trying to... Um, say, oh, this wasn't a big deal. They were only 176 people. Uh, look at how many people has passed away by COVID. Right. And it's that's just a, an absurd strategy. Everything yeah. is so <laughs> unbearable. What, what, and, what, what, what would justice look like to you? I mean, what is there anything that would actually feel satisfying to you at this point? I think that true justice is, is that if we could have our loved ones back but unfortunately that can't happen so the only thing that we can do is we want to uh we want all the involved countries um ukraine canada sweden afghanistan and uk to put even more pressure on iran and uh take the case to an international court of justice and really prosecute uh, the ones who were responsible that night, whoever decided to keep the airspace open uh, for all the commercial flights that night, and who decided to shut down this flight. I think that's, that's the only thing we can do, and that's our basic right as families to know what has happened and who was responsible. I thank you so much, Khaini uh, Mochakiram, for for taking the time today to be part of this and 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 to continue to have conversations that can't be easy for you. I I um I want to end off maybe by giving some more time to the memory of Nilofar and um, uh, your young sister who uh, had just gotten married, who was just graduating, who was just starting her life. Um, wh when you think about her. What is a what is a fond memory, or where does your mind go to? Where is something you want to share with us about her before mm -hmm. we let you go? Um, she was actually my older sister, and uh, 
One of the most beautiful memories I have of her is that the last time I visited uh, Iran, I got to Iran on my birthday night and uh, she came and picked me up from the airport. And uh, by the time we got home, although it was late night, she had already organized a surprise birthday party and she had already invited my all my close friends. and. Hmm. And she put lots of gifts over my bed. So that was that was how she was. She was so kind. She was very kind. And I, I really missed her. Navaz, I thank you. Please take care of yourself in Dallas. Regards to you and your family. And um, um, perhaps one day we can speak under better circumstances. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. دلم تنگه برای گریه کردم کجاست مادر کجاست گهواره همون گهواری که خاطرم نیست همون امنیت حقیقی شاهزاده قصه همیشه دختر فقیر رو میخواست همون شهری که قد خود من بود از این دنیا ولی خیلی بزرگتر نه ترس سایه بود نه وحشت بود من گمی شدم نه یه کبوتر دلم تنگه This is a special edition of Rook Flight PS752. We will not forget. We're coming to you on our platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Telegram, Instagram, iTunes, and YouTube. Our next guest is a lawyer and a human rights activist and a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute's Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. He's also a former senior policy advisor on human rights to Global Affairs Canada. Kave Shahruz is a graduate of Harvard Law School and the University of Toronto. He has written widely on human rights issues and international affairs. He recently led a successful effort to convince Canada's parliament to recognize the 1988 massacre of political prisoners in Iran as a crime against humanity under international law. And right now, Kave Shahruz joins me from Toronto. Hello, sir. Good to be with you, Jean. Thank you for doing this, Kaveh. I, I know you are someone who profoundly cares about Canada, Iran, and the citizens in both countries, and you've done so much work in this regard. Uh, first of all, just to, in terms of you as a person, emotionally, what are you reflecting on one year later after this horrific downing of Flight 752? Yeah, it's a combination, I would say, of grief and anger. Grief uh, for the understandable reasons. So many people in our community were affected. I mean, innocent people, even if they were not in our community, obviously we would be saddened, but these were people near and dear to us. I know people um, who were on that plane. They were not close friends of mine, but they were people that I that I had a passing familiar, familiarity with. And I'm deeply saddened by, by the loss of so many innocent and young lives. But also um, alongside that, 
it's just this anger that's been building for a year um, over the Iranian regime's first effort to uh, deny their role in the massacre, and then subsequently all their efforts at cover up and misleading the international community and simply not cooperating and uh, just deepening the pain of the families even further. So, I mean, when the Canadian government that you would know something about says it will seek justice and accountability, uh, one year later, we're, we're beginning to wonder exactly what that what that means. I mean, despite the best of intentions, perhaps, does it mean a, a public apology? Does it mean allocation of compensation to family members? We've seen a little bit of that. Does, does it mean recognizing a specific person in the Iranian regime or government who is responsible for this tragedy? What What does this mean now, justice and accountability? You know, your guess is as good as mine. I've been hearing all the noises coming out of Global Affairs and the Office of the Minister. Um, they say all the right things, but at a fairly abstract level, they say, you know, we want accountability. Well, what does that actually mean? Iran has not been cooperating with the investigation for the most part. They've, in fact, engaged um, in a cover-up. And, you know, what I want to see is, you know, naming and shaming of specific individuals that were responsible for this, not some low-level officer that may have pressed the button that shot the um, rocket, but actually, you know, senior leaders of the Iranian regime that were behind this. Um, I would want to see some action taken by Canada uh, at the International Court of Justice where states can go to complain against one another. I want to see action at the UN. I would want to see um, some efforts at getting accountability in Canadian courts against the Iranian regime. And I'd want to see us using our legislation. You know, we've got Magnitsky sanctions laws on the books that allow us to sanction high-ranking Iranian officials. And we simply haven't used this legislation. And I think it's time that we do that and we demand accountability. All the nice words coming out of, you know, the prime minister's mouth and the uh, minister's mouth and that of Ralph Goodell, they're all nice and good, but ultimately we need some action and the families need some action. So specifically, based on some of what you just said, uh, give me a few steps. What, what do you believe are the key next steps uh, Canada, Ukraine, uh, our allies must take for Tehran and those senior level folks that you just talked about to accept full responsibility? Yeah, I think the first step is for Canada to actually officially say that this was an act carried out at the highest levels or the orders came at the highest levels of the Iranian regime. This was not, uh, you know, simple human error. This is something that uh, Minister Goodell alluded to um, and Minister Champagne uh, sort of affirmed. Um, you know, so, so we need to actually say that the responsibility for this lies at the, high, that the upper, upper echelons of the Iranian regime. After that, you know, we've got legislation in Canada. We've got Magnitsky legislation that I just mentioned. We need to actually sanction these people. And then we need to take our complaint um, to the International Court of Justice along with the Ukrainians. Um, and we need to kind of work with the international community to isolate the Iranian regime over its um, attempts to lie about this, uh, this crime. There's really no other name for it other than just a mass crime. So to state the obvious, based on what you've just intimated, you do not believe the shooting of Flight 752 was a human error, as the Islamic Republic claims. Look, I don't have any inside information, but I would say that the Iranian regime's story from day one has not added up. Um, you know, first they tried to deny it, then they tried to uh, clean up the, the crash site as quickly as possible to... Uh, you know, remove evidence. They have not cooperated with the international community. All of this points to a guilty conscience. All of this points to a regime that's trying to cover up something horrendous that it did um, that goes beyond simple error. 
So, so last week, or a couple of weeks ago, Wednesday, December 30th, Iran announced the allocation of $150,000 in compensation to each of the families of the uh, uh, 176 victims of Ukrainian Airlines Flight PS752. Um, Canadian and Ukrainian officials say the amount should have been negotiated, hasn't been. What, what do you think of this action by the Iranian uh, government? Well, like all the actions they've taken, it's been sort of done in secret. It's been done quietly without consultation with the families or the other stakeholders, in this case, Ukraine and Canada. Um, And the amount seems laughably low. So um, all to say that I don't think it's a legitimate offer and it shouldn't be accepted by the families. Obviously, it's up to them, but... uh, you know, none of the steps that you would associate with a with a fair effort of compensation were taken here. The 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 Canadian government, as you know, has named January eighth a national day of remembrance for victims of air disasters, uh, which many folks in our community, uh, in the Iranian diaspora, and and Canadians have celebrated. But do do you think I only bring this up because some folks have brought it up to me? Do you think it should have been more specific to PS seven five two? I do. Um, to me, this sounds a lot like an all lives matter kind of moment where you know we're talking about all air disasters. This was not um, an air disaster for one thing. This was not a plane malfunctioning. This was a very specific criminal act by a criminal regime with a history of criminality. And uh, you know, I think. The, the day of commemoration is a great thing, but I think it should have been um, very specific and very focused on this particular criminal act by the Iranian government. Kaveh, before I let you go, I, I do appreciate your insights. Where, where do you, if you zoom out, I mean, you've mentioned the history of this regime, et cetera. Where do you situate this horrific event in the difficult history of Iran and Iranians over the last half century? You know, I think this is part of a long-standing 40-year pattern of criminality and absence of accountability by the Iranian regime. The regime that has carried out massacre after massacre, that shoots people on the streets, is the same one that shoots a plane out of the sky. Um, it's the same one that assigns somebody like Ibrahim Raisi, a man implicated in mass murder, to actually be the lead investigator on the Iranian side. I think this is just part and parcel um, of a regime that has no respect for human life, no respect for human rights, no respect for rule of law. And I think ultimately, you know, this is one issue that has to be dealt with, but there's a larger problem with the Iranian regime that the international community has to um, ultimately deal with. And on that note, you know, um, it's it's occurred to me recently that in the absence of um, in the absence of a unified organized opposition, as you know that we can be quite factional in the Iranian diaspora, um, that one of the ways that change may come is from the increasing number of groups and associations and and um, organizations that are developing in response to different atrocities that are taking place. So a group that comes together globally, you know, outraged by what happened to Navid Afkari. And in this case, the Association for Justice that we're seeing around PS752, that, that the sum of all of these groups around the world um, will become quite powerful in challenging uh, a regime that has uh, has yet to be challenged enough to fall. What do you think of that? I think that's exactly right. When you look at how dictatorships fall, it's ultimately um, 
when they alienate more and more of their uh, population internally and also just lose allies externally. The Iranian regime has very few external allies. Um, and internally, you know, it's it's lost all legitimacy. Women don't want it. Um, ethnic and religious minorities don't want it. Business people don't want it. So on and so forth. And internationally, it's committed so many crimes that people in the diaspora are largely turned against it. And I think um, part of what the Iranian regime does is it tries to fracture um, both um, Iranians inside the country and those in the diaspora. Um, to the extent that these groups can come together with their different grievances and unite under a common flag um, and demand accountability, demand uh, you know free elections or a free referendum, that's when we're going to see uh, the Iranian regime finally fall. Kavesh Ahruz, I thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thank you so much, Jim. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> to a Rook Special Edition flight, PS752, we will not forget. I'm Gian Gameshi. You can find the hub of all things Rook at our website, rookmedia.com, where we have also linked to the website, ps752justice.com. We invite you to check that out. Our next guest grew up in Tehran, got his bachelor's degree in computer engineering, and moved to Canada in 2010 at the age of 24 with his family in search of a better life. Nima Neastani then began working as a systems engineer in cloud hosting and IT service provider companies. Nima lost his dear partner, Shadi Jamshidi, in the downing of flight PS752 one year ago. Nima and Shadi met in early 2017 and were planning on getting married in the summer of 2020. Right now, Nima Neastani joins me from Toronto today. Hello, sir. Hi, John. Thank you for doing this, Nima. I, uh, first of all, I mean, condolences once again to you and your family. Uh, I know you lost your love. You lost your partner, Shadi, on this flight last year. I can only imagine it has been a very difficult year and that this anniversary is making it all very real again. What, what can you tell us about how you're feeling one year later? Oh, well... Um, it's really, really difficult for me to describe. Um, it's, um, I, I don't even know. I don't think there are any words to, that, that can do justice to the way, uh, I'm feeling and we, uh, as the families of victims feel it has been getting harder and harder as the time went by, at least for me. And now it's it's getting to um, a very difficult situation. Um, I, I feel like that I'm reliving all those moments one year ago, and uh, um, 
again, all over again. You know, it's the old cliche is that it gets easier over time and that time heals. You're saying it's getting harder. Tell tell me why. I um I wish I could. I I honestly don't know why, but um, um, that's not to say it was easy in the beginning. It was not. It was exactly the opposite. It was unimaginable pain since day one. But um, as time went by, I guess maybe maybe I can put it this way. Maybe because at least for me, the shock had been so enormous that um, maybe I had some sort of a denial in the beginnings, which is, which is uh, starting to fade away as time goes by. And I'm right. starting to really understand that she's, this has happened to her and she's never coming back. Yeah. You know, part of the intent on doing this kind of a remembrance, um, let alone doing this on a regular basis, talking about what happened, uh, is is to keep the memory alive of um, the people who were on that flight, including, I think that everybody on the Rook team knows at least one person or was friends with somebody, or we all have connections to people that we lost. Um, in your case, this life partner that you had um, big plans with. So in the spirit of keeping those memories alive, tell us a bit about Shadi. Tell us uh, a bit about her and, and what you loved about her. Oh, where do I start? Um, Shadi was the love of my life. I, um, she was different for me since the very first moment uh, that I saw her. Um, she was really sweet, kind, smart. Um, we we shared a lot of uh, a lot of passions. Um, she and and Shadi means joy, and and I think if I wanted to make it short. She was really the embodiment of joy mm. in my life and in everyone's life uh, who knew her. And uh, surely enough, joy has left our lives um, since she's gone. Um, she was so happy. She was passionate about life. She knew how to live and experience every moment uh, to the lived every moment to the fullest um every day with her was an adventure mm, honestly i don't remember one day that was the same as the day before we just had so much good memories so much fun we did so many different things and adventures together um we really really miss her Nima, what was the what was the arrangement at this time last year? She had gone to visit family in Iran, or why why were you were you here and she was coming back from Iran? Yes, um, I was here. Unfortunately, she left. <clears throat> Sorry, she went there to do some uh, to visit her father. Um, the main reason was uh, she's lost her mother, um, when she was 20, maybe around 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. Um, and, um, Shadi really loved her family. That was one of the most important things in her life. 
Um, so she went back after five years, actually, she went back home to visit her father um, and take care of some other stuff. Um, that was the reason. When was the last time you spoke to her? When the plane was taken off. Um, oh, wow. Then, uh, yeah. she, she, you actually talked while she was on the plane? No, we were uh, texting. We were texting um, maybe half an hour before, or maybe it was an hour, I don't remember exactly, before the plane was taken off. We found out that Iran had hit the um u.s bases in iraq and we were worried so uh and we were texting back and forth she, obviously she was very worried uh, that a war was coming and she was actually worried for her father who was staying behind and i remember i told her that um, she shouldn't worry and even if there is a war they wouldn't harm civilians and i just wished her to um, for her plane to take off uh, and, and not for it to get cancelled so that she at least gets away in time. And I told her to um, keep in touch with me and let me know when the plane actually started rolling off the line. So that's when I received the last message from her. She said that the we're taking off, the plane's uh, taking off and... Um, um, everything's under control to be, that's exactly what she said. Wow. Nima. I see. Wow. How did you then, how, how do you find out, um, that the plane has not even made it out of Iranian airspace? Well, about half an hour later that night, um, I went to bed. Um, I went to bed and before basically before i went to sleep i just checked my phone checked the news on my phone for one last time to make sure that nothing has happened and i saw this post that was posted maybe 10 minutes before uh, that said that the ukrainian flight um something's happened to it basically everything was nothing was clear at that time so at first, I couldn't believe it. I, I uh, maybe I even closed my eyes for a few seconds to go to go to sleep, but then I opened them right back up, and then <clears throat> got up and uh, sat behind my computer and started looking at different news news websites and stuff. And and the news was still very new, and it wasn't posted in many uh, in many news agencies, so. I didn't know what to do. I just, you know, I just um, put on my coat, got in the car, and started driving. Where did you drive to? Well, my initial thought was to go to my parents, but then I thought to myself that um, I still don't know what's exactly happened, and if I tell them right now, they might just it's just they might not be able to take it and I, I didn't want to bring this news when I didn't really know exactly what's happened on them yeah. they just loved Chadi as if she was their own child so I decided to go to her brother's house um, who also lives here in Toronto 
<clears throat> and um, as I was on the way, I'd, I called him. Uh, and as, as the phone was ringing, I was hoping that uh, he already knows. But when he picked up the phone, and by the way he greeted me, I immediately knew that he didn't. And so I told him, and him and his wife, after a few seconds of silence, they just broke into tears, and and, and I went to their house. You know, we still don't have empirical evidence as you know of exactly what happened on that night one year ago uh, other than knowing that the iranian military the irgc did shoot down the plane there are there are many who don't believe this was a human error as the islamic republic has claimed um where are you at on this where, where, where what are your feelings about how this happened well i definitely um amongst those people who don't believe this was simply just a human error um you know at first in the first three days i really hoped that it was a mechanical failure but then it turned out uh that it wasn't and now um they say it's a human error but it's really really difficult almost unbelievable almost impossible to be honest there are so many evidence uh, you know, during this past year, basically full time, we as uh, the families and the association, we've been researching and we've, we've been trying to find truth. And, and the research and the evidence shows that this is almost next to impossible um, to be just a human error like this. We've heard a lot of stories, Nima, about how families of the, the victims of Flight 752 have faced harassment or threats from, from Tehran or IRGC agents or uh, faced intimidation. Have you or any of your family members been subject to this kind of harassment? Um, no, uh, we have not, but uh, we never went back. None of my family members nor I uh, never did go back. As a matter of fact, uh, I haven't been back since I moved to Canada. It's almost 11 years now. Um, but I have heard a lot of uh, from a lot of families that this has happened to them. And uh, this is definitely true. It sounds, um, I mean, I feel almost ridiculous talking about closure as if you and the other family members and um, Shadi's dad and everybody can, can somehow get closure after an event like this. But but we do talk about justice. Um, um, you talk about justice. The Association of Family Members talks about justice. What what does it mean to you, Nima? What, what, what would be the kind of justice that, that would really... Um, m make you feel like uh, is deserve it. Well, you know what? Um, to be honest, I feel like there's there's going to be no justice would be real justice in this scenario. Real justice would be for them to come back. 
But the next best thing would would be for everyone who's who was responsible from the very person that pushed the button up until um, the person who was in charge of everything. They all justice for me at least means for them um, to show up in an international court of justice and be prosecuted for this for this crime against humanity i know it's far-fetched but um we just we as the families of victims we only have one goal now, and that's it. And we're going to do everything um, to achieve it, or we're going to die trying. Nima, I, I thank you so much for taking the time today. I know doing these interviews uh, um, doesn't make things any easier for you, and I and I really appreciate you um, continuing to spread the word and, and, and joining us on Rook. Let me, before I let you go, ask you one more question about um, the, the woman you were going to marry this past summer. If you had the chance to speak to Shadi right now, what, what would you want to say to her? There's so much to say, honestly. Um, I'll, I'll just tell her I love her for the one last time. Nima, thank you so much, and um, take care of yourself. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> تون همه بیرونه ای هم قبیله چی بگم قبیله سرگردونه غربات از اون خاک پا ما رو جدا نکردی قبیله سرگردون به خون بر This is a Rook Special Edition Flight PS752. We will not forget. We're coming to you on our platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Telegram, iTunes, and YouTube. And we do invite you to subscribe if you like what you're hearing and want to learn more about our content. 
Our next guest has a wealth of experience in aviation and flight safety. He is a retired pilot, an airline pilot's instructor, employment standards officer with Canada's Ministry of Labor, and airlines safety inspector for U.S. Army Airborne Standardization. Amir Kasravi also organized the Iranian Pilot and Flight Engineers Association whilst still in Iran in the 1970s. Right now, Amir Kasravi joins us from Toronto today. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us on this special. Uh, Amirjan, what are you reflecting on one year after the horrific news broke about the shooting down of a civilian aircraft, Ukrainian flight PS-752? Well, it takes me back to my years of the experience in aviation that we, as a pilot, would think about nothing but the safety. And the safety means that we have to follow all the rules and all the regulation and follow all the instruction. And all of a sudden, something happens like this, which is totally out of line. And it's not something that we can digest. I put myself in the seat of that pilot in the last few seconds, how terrible he was feeling, how hard he was trying to save the passenger's life, and so forth and so on. It was really, really something that is uh, completely unexpected for the pilot. Things like this happen. So, I mean, you are an aviation expert. I want, I want you to help us understand some of the facts of what happened on January 8th, 2020, that fateful day. What do we know today technically about how this flight was shot down that we didn't know in the immediate aftermath? Oh, well, uh, I, I try to stick to the rules and the regulations and also avoid from the politics of the thing. Sure. Because we're now talking about the technical issues. And what we know for the facts is that this airplane was shut down and Iran, as a sovereign country who is responsible for the safety and security of the airspace uh, for the commercial airlines, they actually approved the flight plan of this airplane on that day, just a few hours after they attacked the American base in Iraq. Right. And, uh, and they cleared this airplane for takeoff. And then the fact is that after uh, two, three minutes, uh, the missile attack, the first one and the second one, uh, caused this airplane to crash. Now, there are, these are all the facts. And up to 48 hours, Iran actually denied, well, we are talking in rock, so I better be rock. Please. Iran actually lied about what happened because they knew that they shut down the airplane. They knew that there was two missiles and there was a pilot report that they saw the airplane falling down from the sky, but still they denied it for 48 hours. Let me, let me, just, then, let me just stop you there because I want to take what you've said one point at a time. First of all, to give context around the airspace, because this is a very pivotal issue that the airspace was open for civilian aircraft. Uh, so the downing of the flight uh, 752 on January, 8th, as you say, came just hours after Iran had carried out missile strikes on two air bases housing U.S. forces in Iraq. In, in, this was in response, ostensibly at least, to the killing of Commander Qasem Soleimani. 
Lee uh, in a U.S. Jones strike in Baghdad on the 3rd of January. So there were extreme tensions and a, a prospect of war between Iran and the United States. Everybody was talking about this. My question, under the Convention on International Civil Aviation Rules, should Iran not have been closing the airspace to civilian flights? I mean, I don't know about this stuff, but that seems just obvious, does it not? Yes, of course. There is a rules about the uh, conflict zones that uh, all the pilots are aware of when they look at their maps, all the conflict zones are actually identified and it has the dimension, it has the altitude, it has all the information that you want how far you have to be from this conflict zone. And is normally this is a, a NOTAM. Sometimes is NOTAM is a notice to the airman. And this NOTAM comes sometimes uh, temporarily because something happens right now. And they send this NOTAMs to all the airlines, all the operators, and all the authorities to avoid those areas. And that's, as you said, Based on the Convention of Chicago, also there was a document 10,084 after MH17, which was shut down by uh, Russian rebels, eastern uh, uh, corner of the uh, Ukrainian, and they killed all the people, and they denied it. And of course, after four years of investigation, they had to prove that there was a missile and that document came out reinforcing the fact that conflict zones has to be notified to all the airlines operators. So was there a, a, a NOTAM, as you say, in this case? Was there a specific directive issued to pilots on the morning of that flight? There was none. There was only one NOTAM that it was issued one hour and 20 minutes after Iran attacked the Iraq uh, by FAA, Federal Aviation Administration of the United States, that you should call it kind of Civil Aviation Authority of the U.S. Okay. They issued that nota and they notified all the American registered airplane to uh, actually avoid Iranian airspace because of the high uh, conflict zone and because of the situation existing there. But that wouldn't, so, that wouldn't affect a Ukrainian flight uh, in Iranian airspace? Well, that is the shortcoming of the ICAO. And also the question is whether or not EASA, which is a European safety organization, they were aware of the FAA NOTAM or not. If they were, Ukraine is part of the Europe, so they should have been notified. So there are a lot of questions has to be answered here. We don't have the answer yet. Can I just ask you, what? why would Iran keep the airspace open for civilian flights? I mean, what, what, what could the reason uh, be, <laughs> you know, uh, in this kind of tense environment? You know, we don't uh, we don't want to get into something that we don't know really what happened behind the closed door. But there is a lots of fact that points to uh, something that actually when 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 we go and uh, talk about the third report from the 
civil aviation of organization of Iran, uh, you would know that they knew about it. It was, as you mentioned, it was a high alert situation in Iran. There was a retaliation, you know, announcement between two countries. And the airspace of, of Iran was totally unsafe for commercial airplane. But still, they kept it open. Now, was it by mistake or was it a willful misconduct? Was it a decision-making process behind the closed door to maintain the airspace open for reasons? Do you know and any? Of course, do you know anything about the chain of command about who would make those decisions? I mean, in assessing the ultimate accountability, if we want to know who who would make the call on this, do we know what the chain of command is in in terms of firing missiles like this in the IRGC? Well, that must be the uh, the uh, actually the uh, military uh, situation here that we're talking about, and of course, is a sepah. And we, we don't know who made the decision, but there was an intentional decision to attack Iraq. There is no doubt about it. They knew that there was a be, there going to be a retaliation. This is a fact. But still, they decided not to close the airspace. They knew that they should do that. It is not that country doesn't know about rules and regulation of the aviation. And this is because of the Iranian revolutionary people. They don't know about these things. They do know about these things. I have a lot of proof to tell you why they know about it. Because they, at some point, they always they refer to the specific sections of the ICAO rules and they know about all these rules, and they enforce it actually in many cases in Iran. So they knew about it. But why this disregard about closing uh, the airspace? That's the question that the Iranian government has to uh, clarify in the final report. Why they did not close the airspace? What was the human factors? What was the decision-making process that ended up not closing this uh, airspace to the commercial air? Well, well, then there's a couple of other things that once the airspace is left open that don't totally add up in terms of the human error uh, claims of the uh, the Islamic Republic. I mean, um, I mean, among those questionable assertions that Iran has made about how things went wrong, uh, in this human error, as they've called it, was that the missile defense battery was misaligned by an em enormous directional error of 107 degrees, which I understand is, is, is if not unprecedented, is quite, is quite odd, uh, that the IRGC personnel lost all contact with the command center and that operators mistook a 130-foot-long commercial passenger jet taking off and ascending from east to west for some sort of threatening missile coming in from west to east. Do any of those points make sense to you? Well, you know, the government of Iran needs to respond to all these questions. And if they don't, they are actually, uh, they put themselves in a position of in fault. And historically, no matter what they do, this is something that happened 
intentionally because somebody decided to target this airplane with missiles. Somebody pulled the trigger intentionally. So all this thing has done intentionally. Now they want to have a narrative of story that they made about this mistakes, a single person operator that misaligned his a true note within his monitor. And then, as you mentioned, there was some common sense. The airplane coming from the airport is taking off. You can see it on his radar monitor. And the airplane going actually toward the west, as you mentioned. All these things point to the fact that the story that they have actually provided, after six, seven months of not handing in the uh, fly, uh, flight data recorder and the uh, cockpit voice recorder right. to, to be decoded. They bought time to make the narrative to say to the other peoples that there was one mistake. Okay, now you said it. Prove it. How we can verify all these things that you're saying? Why there is only one narrative? why there is not other narratives that who made the decision not to close the airspace what was the reason behind that normally an investigation into airplane accident a crash normally when it happens young it is based on the fact under annex 13 of the ico that the cause of the accident is unknown. So the whole functionality of the Annex 13 to investigate an accident is based of not knowing what caused the accident. Right. Now we have to put the pieces together one by one, going through all the information, black boxes, this and that, to right. find out right. the chain of the error caused that Accident. So, uh, Amir, let me ask you this. I mean, uh, um, given your years as a as a pilot yourself, given your years of working in in and around safety on various continents, uh, when it comes to aviation, uh, and I don't ask this to assign any blame. I'm actually genuinely curious about this. Could could on the morning of January eighth in twenty twenty, could the pilot of Ukrainian flight PS seven five two have have declared that he doesn't want to fly the plane? It, it, would that have been an option for him to say, this is too dangerous, we're not going to do this? Well, if he knew it, that what happened that day in Iran, if I were the pilot, I would have done it. I, if I were the pilot of that airplane, if I knew it that the, there's a high alert in the airspace, I wouldn't fly the airplane. And you, I may and, have, and you have lost the right to my do. job. Yeah. Oh, I see. Right. I may have lost my job, but my first and the most important thing is the safety of myself and all the passengers. So could he do this? Not in this time of the year that we are right now. Don't forget that aviation evolved since 1903 to 2020. At some point, pilots, they had all the authorities. They made all the decisions. And the 
decision was final. Nobody could challenge the airplane captains as the authority, uh, his decision. His decision was final, not today. Today, there are so many different, uh, you know, technologies available and all the communication is available that everybody can communicate with everybody, no matter where you are around the world. So these days, this doesn't happen like that anymore. Pilots actually, as I should tell you, which I heard from the one of the airline owners who was a friend of mine here in Toronto, he told me the airline pilots are just like the truck drivers. It doesn't make any difference. It's a job. We tell them what to do, they go and do it. Do you, do you believe, or I suppose, I, how, how optimistic are you that we will ever find out exactly what happened and caused the death of 176 innocent civilians one year ago? There are so many facts available that we can actually, it, it leads us to the uh, factual information and the factual analysis and the factual conclusion. There's no doubt about it. We have enough facts. We know the uh, government of Iran, how during the Iran-Iraq war, they send the kids over the mines and things like this using the human shield is not something that Iran never used before. Yeah. I hate to say that, but is it possible? Of course, Iran has to, has to prove it otherwise. It is not that we have to go and prove it that they did it. They have to prove it otherwise to the world, to everybody. You know, the whole aviation industries eyes are on the final report to see what is the Iran's narrative. And if they don't come up with something satisfactory, nobody's going to accept it. And then there is a, con uh, there is a consequence. Amir Kassarvi, I, I thank you for bringing your experience, your perspective, and your thoughts um, on this um, important uh, conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Merci. Thank you for this. Thank you very much, Jan. Good question. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. zardo sardo tango asro غریبی حسرو یه دنیا سوالو تو سینم گذاشتی جهانی دروبو یه دنیا پروبو یه درد امیبو یه تیزی یه تیبو یه قلب مریضو یه آه قلیزو یه دنیا محالو تو سینم گذاشتی رفیقم کجایی دریبن کجایی کجایی تو بیمن تو بیمن کجایی رفیقم کجایی دریبن کجایی کجایی تو بیمن تو بیمن کجایی You are listening to a Rook Special Edition Flight PS752 We will not forget for the hub of all things Rook, our website is rookmedia.com and we have linked there to the website ps752justice.com. We invite you to check that out. 
Our final guests on this remembrance special also grew up in Iran before making a life in the West. Saghar Nurian and Ashkan Davudpur both moved to the United States in 2012 and got married in 2014. Saghar got her PhD from Johns Hopkins University and is now working as a scientist. Ashkan got his master's degree in construction management from Germany and has been working as a civil engineer in the United States. Saghar's younger sister, Ghazal, was set to begin her PhD in Canada last year. They reunited with Ghazal and the family in December 2019 in Iran. Saghar and Ashkan returned to the U.S. on January 6th of last year. Sadly, Ghazal was not able to complete her journey to Canada on January 8th. Instead, she was another of the stellar young victims of flight PS752. Right now, Saghar Nurian and Ashkan Davudpur join me from Washington, D.C. Hello to both of you. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hi, Jian. Thanks for inviting us to this interview. Thank you for both doing this, and uh, I know this conversations will never get easier. Saga, first of all, condolences once again to you, Ashkan, and your family. You you lost your dear sister Ghazal in this uh, infuriating event. I can only imagine it's been a very difficult year, and this anniversary is making it all very real again. What what can you tell us about how you are feeling one year later? Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a very difficult uh, year for for us, for the whole family. Very tough moments. Um, we have we have like different feelings. First of all, obviously, we miss her a lot. Um, I haven't seen her for for one whole year, and it is unbelievable. Um, I. We feel sad, we feel the grief, and also we have, uh, we're angry for what happened to her and the other passengers and the crew of, of this flight. It's been very difficult. It's been very, very difficult. What happened was like unbelievable and obviously unforgivable. You know, everyone that we've spoken to so far on this special, almost everyone has said the exact same thing, grief and anger. Ashkan, is, would that describe you as well? Yes, definitely. I mean, first of all, I cannot really believe it's been one year now. And, you know, I cannot imagine one year has passed and we have lost Ghazal. Uh, it's been a very difficult time. As I mentioned, it's, it passed very fast. But when I think about it, of what of the things that happened to us, to the family, and what we went through, I cannot imagine how we are here right now. One of the other family members I was speaking to just a bit ago was saying she she feels like everything changed in her life, like nothing feels normal anymore. Sagar, does that ring for you? Sure. Like um, everything got changed. And so even i would say like last year that we went home uh i and Ashkan, we were home we were in iran for uh for the winter break um i was you know whatever the problem were in iran i was trying to see the good side and i was trying to enjoy my time being with my family but after this incident that we had to go after this tragedy i want to say like that we had to go back to iran uh to spend time with the family i saw everything dark and I couldn't see anything positive in 
and I would say whatever I saw was like dark and bad feelings and no positive points, no positive aspects of the life. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be happy again. You know, the name of this special is We Will Not Forget. And um, obviously, we want to take stock and, and understand uh, what we can learn from this, where we can go forward, what what justice means to you, uh, the families of the victims, uh, and, and what you're feeling one year later. But we would be remiss if we didn't uh, first um, preserve those memories and talk about the people we've lost. So, so Sagar, tell, tell us a bit about your sister. Tell us. Tell us, uh, for those who didn't get the chance to meet Ghazal, what they would have uh, had in their lives if they had met her. Yeah, Ghazal, uh, she was, uh, at the, when it happened, she was 26, full of dreams and hopes, plans. She was very kind and smart, hardworking, dedicated, always had like plans for her life. And she knew what she wanted to do. And I always tried to, I and my brother, we both, tried to help her like planning for her for for her life and uh so she she was born in 1993 november 2nd 1993 and uh, she was the third kid of the family and from the moment that she was born we were all in love with her very beautiful very pretty and uh, we always try to uh like talk about this that beauty is part of it but being clever, being nice, being kind to other people are other basically aspects of, of, of human being. And I think I think she was a true example of beauty and cleverness. Um, she always tried to help others. Like when she got this admission from from a Western University in Canada, she always like after that she always tried to help other friends and uh, mm. classmates to get admission uh, from Canada as well. I always saw, see her like I, I don't want to use past sentence uh, because I, I it's just hard for me to to use past sentences and I would say um, I always see her very calm mm -hmm. and uh, enjoy the moment. That's that's really something with her. I would I would say that that was with her that she was always trying to enjoy the moment and I wanted everything the best for her and. Uh, she she did she worked hard and we tried to help as well and uh she got she got accepted to few universities within us as well but because of the current administration she was like this i i i can't just come and come mm -hmm. to us and not being able to see the family for years and years mm -hmm. and uh she she strongly believed that canada is the uh, land of humanity and uh she decided to go to canada she, and, she uh, was going to do her PhD, and she, her dream PhD, was to become a yes. professor, right? Exactly. Her, her dream was to be a professor uh, at the university. Even like right after she started the program for the for PhD, we talked about postdoctoral program. We talked about what she can do after the PhD. All the plans, everything was set up. Even we started talking about what are going to be like good institutes or universities to get a get a postdoc. So everything was like set up for her and uh i just can't believe what happened it's it's crushing that 
so many of the people, I mean, it's crushing to lose anyone, but so many of the, the folks that were on that plane were people who were beginning their lives, who were at the, the beginning of, of an amazing journey, like Ghazal. Uh, Ashkan, it, it's, um, it's obviously got to be a strange twist of fate that you guys were on a flight only two days before, um, and that I guess you probably saw Ghazal two or three days before the, the fateful uh, 752. Uh, tell me about the last time seeing her and tell me about reflecting on the fact that uh, this flight could have been you guys. Uh, uh, you, you left on January 6th, not January 8th. Exactly. So, so yes, yes, we were together in Iran. We met Ghazal. We were with the family. We spent time with the family and we had great time. Uh, and we, I mean, on the sixth, as you said, I mean, we had a we had a flight back to the U.S. and Ghazal was at the airport, you know, and we, I mean, we said goodbye, but we didn't know it's going to be the last time we see each other. It's very heartbreaking. We cannot believe it, as I said. And um, yeah, yeah, we lost her. We, we lost a beautiful, kind, loving, smart person. Not even us. I, I would say to Canada and the, maybe the whole world lost a great addition to humanity. Sarah, you you end up? Did you did you say you end up going back to Iran after this to be with family and and how have your family? How have your parents? How have the your your extended family been able to cope with this? Um, yeah, so right after what happened, like we got here, we got to US on, on, on January 6th, like at night, went to work on January 7th, and I was still jet lagged when, when this tragedy happened. And right after that, I and Ashkan, we both decided to go back to Iran, but it was, it was not easy because all the flights got canceled after this tragedy. Um, we had to like take, it, our flight got canceled. We had to like change our reschedule our flights multiple times. And but you know we were at the position that we wanted to go to Iran, whatever happens. Um, so finally, like getting multiple flights, we could we could go back to Iran. And the family were they were ruined. Like they were, I I couldn't believe what happened. Still, I can't, I can't believe it, but I couldn't believe that Mazad is not with us anymore to the time that I went back to Iran. And I saw, I saw the family, I saw what happened, and I saw like all the big white flowers in front of our house. And it was like, oh my God, it, it is serious. And um, obviously, it is, it is not easy for the family at all. They're all heartbroken. They are, the, fa- the whole family is ruined. How did you find out? Yeah, so that was a very so I was I was on the phone with her right before uh, boarding, and uh, she she was so first she didn't know about the high tension between Iran and U.S. I knew about that, and I I told her that oh this thing happened in Iraq, and she started crying. She she thought that there w- there will be a war uh, starting soon. And uh, I tried to calm her down, and I was like, "I'm sure nothing gonna happen to Tehran because she was not worried for herself. She was mostly worried for for my mom and for the family because right. she thought that something gonna go wrong with Tehran. You know, the wars will start in Tehran. 
And I try to calm her down and say that, oh, everything's going to be all right. No worries. Just go and safely get, get to Canada and we're going to find a way for the rest of the family to get out of Iran. Don't worry. And uh, that was the last conversation that I had with her. And again, as you, as, as you mentioned earlier, like two days before that, we went, we, we basically, we passed through the same road. We, we got out of like, we, we, we were boarded in the same same airport and everything was just so normal that I couldn't even believe that in less than 48 hours everything can get changed and um, yeah that was the last conversation and and uh, she so I was still jet lagged as I said and uh, I was home with Ashkan uh, and we were like doing some unpacking because we just got back to US right so and uh I was chatting with my texting with my friends too and uh, like everyone was like super worried about the situation in Iran but interestingly I was not uh, that worried because I was like oh nothing gonna happen we're gonna be all right this kind of tension has been around for a while but nothing gonna go wrong um and I was like oh Gaza's flight is going to Europe so it's not gonna go through like uh, south of Iran, so it's gonna be safe. And I was, I was hundred percent sure that nothing gonna go wrong to Tehran or anything like any any place close to Tehran. Right, right. And uh, I had my conversation with her, and the last thing that she said, she said, "Oh yeah, uh, the crew uh, are boarding too." And then she texted in like um, ten minutes later that I'm boarding too, and I was like, "Okay, that's good." And as I said, I was jet lag and I, I fall asleep. And uh, like after like an hour or so, I woke up and I just looked at my phone and I, I realized that I have like, I don't know, 10, 15 missed calls from my friends in California. And I was like, what is wrong? And, you know, on the iPhone, like all the uh, hot news are coming up. And one of the news was about like a plane near Tehran that, that is crashed and I was like this is impossible I just opened that opened that up and I, I read the news and I was like no it's not possible that's it's, it shouldn't be her I'm sure it's not her right away one of my friends she called and I was like I, I didn't say hi I didn't say a word I just said <laughs> I just said please tell me it's not Ukrainian airline mm. and she said it is It was very hard. She she she's gone. I was shouting. I was I was like I can't believe this happening to me. <laughs> very very hard moments. For me and Ashkan was by my side too. For both of us, we're like I I was just shouting, and Ashkan was not in the room at the time, but. She, he just heard me and he was like, he got worried that what something is going wrong with, you know, if I'm okay. She opened, he opened the door and was like, yes, yeah, so this thing happened. And he was like, it's impossible. And uh, we read the yeah. news. Yeah, I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I wanted to drink some, some water, I remember. So I went down the stairs in the kitchen and then I heard something like as somebody's Somebody is screaming. I thought, is it a fight or what is it? 
And then I realized the the the, the, the voice is coming from upstairs. So I ran upstairs. I saw I saw Sarah on the ground, and I cannot I cannot forget her eyes up to date. Uh, and you know I was I was I, I was just saying what happened what has happened tell me she was just screaming and then she told me Gaza's plane has crashed and I was I was really thought maybe somebody is making a joke or something I I got really angry what kind of joke it is and I took the the phone from Sarah I was talking with her friend and she told me. She told me, yes, it has crashed. And I couldn't believe, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was just standing there. I talked so hard, but I didn't know what to say. I was just Googling to see if, if it's the wrong news or it's a fake news or something. Maybe some, some people are alive. But no, no, it wasn't that. It was, it was really hard. I cannot forget Sarah's eyes. Sarah, did your parents know, or did you have, what was that, how, how did you get in touch with them? So, you are not, it was early in the morning in Iran, right, that, that time, yes. and uh, we were like, do they know, do, or, uh, I mean, I don't know what to do, but uh, we decided to call my brother, and First of all, confirmed the news with him. I was just all the time saying that maybe he, she missed the flight. Maybe she was not in that flight. Or uh, Ashkan called my brother, and uh, I could hear my brother crying, uh, saying that yeah, we we lost her, and they were at um, they were at the crash site, uh, and they were at the crash site at the moment, and. Um, they saw they saw very very tragic scenes that time. Wow! So we it was confirmed that she was on that plane and uh, we lost her. And my mom, I, I don't know what to say about her. Even now, she is she is still in shock and uh, not not doing well. That, that's a that's. The fact that they were at the site, we've heard a lot about how the Iranian government scrubbed that site clean, you know, bulldozed all the the materials there and everything within 24 hours. So they would have gotten there before that happened. Right, right. Yeah, it was before before um, the, the scene get cleaned up, basically. So, Ashkan, I mean, uh, to segue into... I don't know if we can be proactive about this, but I mean, just to segue into the practicalities, we still don't have um, empirical evidence of exactly what happened on that night one year ago, other than acknowledgement that the Iranian military, the IRGC, shot the plane down. There are many, as I've said through this special, who do not believe this was a human error, as the Islamic Republic uh, maintains it was. What do you believe? I believe... Iranian government has not provided any rational, professional report or evidence that says it was, it was indeed unintentional. So, I mean, unless they provide 
proof and unless there's a like investigation a third party investigation independent investigation that approves it was indeed unintentional we are to believe it was intentional because there are uh, there are many evidences there are many sayings that you know it cannot happen you know we we are i mean we have an association and within the, our association there's an we have a fact finding committee and we are family members but but we we enjoy the experts aviation and military experts yes so not just us to say this was intentional just because we get emotional we are in touch with people who are experts and they cannot say let's let's put it this way they cannot say that based on what Elon has provided they could come conclude it was unintentional so we we wished we wished in the beginning it was indeed unintentional but there is no proof Elon has not provided any proof on that so we believe it was intentional unless pro- unless proven otherwise you guys we've heard many stories at this point about how the families of of the victims uh, of flight 752 uh, have faced intimidation or threats or harassment from uh, the IRGC or from Tehran or from its, from its agents. Uh, have you or any of your family members been subject to this kind of harassment? Have you heard about this? Sagar? Um, I've heard about that for the families. Yes, I've heard about that. Um, what I would say is is like one of the obvious things is like um, they didn't they didn't return us any of the belongings of of the of the passengers or the crew like for Ghazal they gave us back her passport which was very weird that the passport was in a good condition but not her backpack not her cell phone not her laptop not any of her belongings it's just so you know unbelievable that I could find her belongings when I was going through the pictures and the videos posted in like on the you know here and there in different media yes but they were not returned to us like this is a big there's nothing about like uh you know it's not about the financial part but it's about it was their last last thing that they had and does anybody give Um, you a rationale for not handing the stuff back over basically i asked about that because it's i want to tell you this they gave us like a her uh her password along with with like a one dollar bill and i said what is this one dollar bill and they said that's for her i was like okay how could you find this one dollar bill and how do you know that it's for her first of all she had like more than this with her but more money than this with her but like you say that this is one dollar belongs to Nuria. tell me how could you find it like how could because everything was in her backpack and i think they I don't know what they do and they said oh no the backpack was like bloody and that was a lie because in one of the videos from Isna I could find I could see her backpack nice and clean sitting on the on the ground but I don't know they because of any reason they just decided to give me the passport and a one dollar bill which is like unbelievable Sagar, when I let me ask you both this: um, 
the the word justice gets used. I mean, we talk about accountability, responsibility, but um, certainly I know members of your association, uh, some of the folks we've interviewed today, um, talk about seeking justice. Um, what, what does it mean for you, justice? What would what how would how would you see justice accomplished in this case? That's a very good question. Justice may have like different mean meanings to different people. For us, the families of the victims, justice is to have the people who ordered this to happen and the people who, who actually did that come to the court and be accountable for what they did and be punished for that. And the punishment is not just monetary punishment. The families doesn't, doesn't care about the the compensation as as you know as Iran is, is trying to put in the world, you know, put on the news. The families, of course, compensation is important, it's the right, but it's not the first thing that they are willing to accept. I mean, they need they need to see they need to know what actually happened to their loved ones and who was responsible for that. And they want to see those people, you know, to be tried as a like in the International Court of Justice. Sorry, Ashkan. So, uh, just to 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 make sure that everybody knows the, the latest, it, it was last week, I guess, or about a week and a half ago, that Iran announced the allocation of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in compensation mm -hmm. to each of the families. So, so how did you react when you heard that? You, um, you know, as I mentioned, compensation is not the first priority, is not the second priority, and is not the last priority. I mean. What we need is to know what actually happened to our loved ones. Compensation doesn't provide that for us. You know, compensation, Iran just put a number and throw it, you know, on the news and say, okay, $150,000 or whatever, just to see what is the feedback. The, the feedback of the families, the feedback of us, our family, is that we don't need your money for now unless we know what actually happened to our loved ones right. this is this is what we need to know first justice to us is to know what happened and who was responsible for this crime Sarah? yeah same like I, I don't i don't want to talk about compensation at all because um you can't you can't buy people's blood by money um, and you can't put number and amount of you know money that you can pay and be like okay it is over and forget about it. I don't want to talk about compensation. What I want to talk about and what I want to hear about is like what happened that night, why this specific plane was selected to get shot and you know um, fired them with two at least two missiles. If it was really unintentional, why two missiles were shot? And Apparently, I'm, you know, we are ordinary people, but what we know is that that was a very high-tech system um, that Tor one uh, that they, they, they shot the missiles from. Yes. How is that possible? How is that possible that uh, that instrument is not aligned well, was not aligned well, which is like just so unbelievable? And they, you know what they do? They just throw some numbers like, Okay, we have we have this amount of degree misalignment. It's just made up numbers. 
Yeah, exactly. Just making up numbers, whatever. We'll see what happens. What I want to know is like what happened, why happened, why this thing happened to our loved ones. And it happened and now you're calling them martyr. Is this is this is an insult to me. Words have meaning. We cannot just throw them like what in in the, in a manner that be like okay whatever. They were not going to a fight for God or for a belief. They were just they just come come to Iran to visit family for winter break and go back to their work. You killed them. You are responsible. You are in charge. I want to add to that. You know. I think Iran is trying to minimize this crime to a mistake by an operator. You know, what, what we want to know is not limited to that operator. We want to know what was the chain of command, who ordered that, who ordered, who ordered the, for those missiles to be shot to that plane. We need that. We don't need compensation or we don't, we don't need low-level punishment for some soldiers we don't need that in military chain of command is very important when we take it very seriously and those people need to come to the international court of justice and be responsible for what they did I very much appreciate you know if, if the two emotions that you spoke about in the beginning are are grief and anger we've heard that viscerally from both of you uh, through the last half an hour. Uh, and I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. I, I want to end off um, with a memory of Ghazal and, and um, uh, Ashkan, maybe I'll start with you and then go to uh, Sogar. Uh, um, maybe in Ashkan, in your case, you can share a, a fond memory that you have of Ghazal. And uh, go ahead. Yeah. Um you know, the memory, I mean, I got to know Ghazal just only six years, but it, it was a very short six years. So I want to share you, share with you a memory that I have, the last memory probably that I have with Ghazal in Iran, when we were, we were in Iran. It was a, it was a morning and Ghazal, you know, he, she was, she was just trying to you know, pick some of the stuff that she had left in Iran. She wanted to bring it back with her to Canada, and she found a camera. It was a camera, you know, one of those that you take a picture and, and you know, the picture comes out pretty quickly. And the instant. Sure. The instant. Yeah. Yeah. Instant camera, or I don't know what they call it, but so, so she was really, we are very happy that she found this because she had it from her childhood. She had good memories and, hmm. you know, she said, I'm going to take it to Canada and I'm going to have pictures with my friends and things like that. And then we said, okay, how do you know it's, it's still working? <laughs> and she randomly just took a picture and I was accidentally in that picture. And, you know, I said, since, since I am in this picture, I want to take this with no, I, I want to take this one. And she gave it to me. And I still have that picture. And I cannot believe that was the last thing that uh, was given to me by Gazal. And um, yeah, yeah, this, I mean, I still have that picture. With so I had a few um, a final words to you, from you. Uh, if, if Gazal were here today, 
or if you had the chance to speak to her, what would you want to say? Uh, I just wanted to say that I I was wrong because I I told I told Gazan that everything gonna be fine and nothing gonna go wrong. I always have this guilt guilty feeling with me that I was not there. Yeah, I was in that same airport like two days before, but I was not there at the time that this high tension was happening. I just want to explain to her that I, I love her so much. And I wish I knew what happened. And I wish I could ask her not to take that plane, not to not to board, not to go there. And, you know, I wish I could survive her. And I know she, she knew that how much I love her, um, but... I just want to say sorry that I said everything's going to be fine. So, yeah. Rai Nurion, no, uh, yes, Ashkan, you want to say something? Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to add that because this is the feeling that many families have. The, I mean, the sense of guilt. They, have, they, they, are, they, they feel guilty that they let their love on that plane. Which, but, of course, is, is misplaced. You know that you couldn't have anticipated this. You know yeah, that no yeah. one in the world knew this was going to happen. Nobody. Nobody could this. Uh, the guilt is for the criminals. The guilt is for yeah. the criminals who did this crime, not for the family. So just wanted to say that. Uh, Sagar Ashkan, yeah. I, 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 uh, our thoughts are with you. I thank you again for the time. I hope you take care of yourselves. I hope I hope we see you in a post-COVID world before too long, and I, I uh, once again uh, we will try to keep the memory alive as uh, for forever. And in the meantime, what you've shared with us today, we really appreciate. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye. And this is full time for this Brook special edition. Thank you again to all the guests who agreed to come on and discuss very difficult and emotional subject matter. We hope we've been able to create a little more awareness or do our part in keeping the memories of the lives lost last year at this time in the forefront of our minds. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Shian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashi. کجای جاده پیدا شد کجا دستاتو گم کردم که پایان من اینجا شد کجای قصه خوابیدی که من تو گریه بیدارم که هر شب حرم دستاتو به آغوشم بده کنم تو با دلتنگیای من تو با این جده هم دستی تظاهر کن ازم دوری تظاهر می کنم هستی تو آهنگ سکوت
جهادم نیست فقط تصویر میبینم یه حسی از تو در من هست که میدونم تو رو دارم بسه برگشتن در رد پای تو کجای جاده پیدا شد کجا دستاتو گم کردم که پایان من اینجا شد کجای قصه خوابیدی که من تو گریه بیدارم که هر شب حرم دستاتو به آغوشم بده کارم تو با دلتنگی های من تو با این جد خمدستی تظاهر کن ازم ظهر می کنم هستی